Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is a summer of Eleanor's picks on Writers & Company. Today, one of the most popular and critically acclaimed authors of her generation, Zadie Smith, on her essays about writing, her addiction to reading, and her family. Zadie Smith is a generous writer, moving easily between sensibilities, ages, intellect. Her very first novel, White Teeth, was published when she was only 24, a big, vibrant story of cross-cultural, cross-generational, ethnically diverse London. It won three first novel awards, was made into a television miniseries, translated into more than 20 languages, and sold over a million copies. For someone who made it so big, so young, she's remarkably modest, interested, and thoughtful. I realized right from the first time I met her, almost 20 years ago, that this is someone I'd want to interview with every new book. That first conversation took place just before her 30th birthday when she published her third title, On Beauty, a sort of campus novel in that the main character is a professor of art history. It was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won Britain's Women's Prize for Fiction. But even before she published On Beauty, Zadie Smith was writing insightful essays about Kafka, George Eliot, E.M. Forster, and Nabokov. To her own surprise, she says, she found herself with a collection that also includes her reflections on movies, on her craft, and on some contemporary writers. Changing My Mind is a delightful book, including personal bits about her reading and her family. In fact, Zadie Smith is a brilliant essayist. In 2018, she produced another collection called Feel Free, where she engages deeply with the social, political, and cultural aspects of contemporary life. Books, too, of course, and visual art, in writing that is reflective, personal, and with a new urgency. And in 2020, she wrote a small book, Intimations, an engaging exploration prompted by the pandemic. Alongside these titles, she's published more novels, N.W., a more experimental book set in her neighborhood of northwest London, and Swing Time, which taps, if you'll pardon the pun, into her childhood love of tap dancing, among other things. Zadie Smith was born in London in 1975, the oldest of three children, to an English father and a much younger Jamaican mother. She studied at Cambridge, which is also where she began writing White Teeth. She graduated with a first and a reported half-million-dollar advance. It's also when she had her first short story published in The New Yorker magazine. In 2019, she came out with her first collection of stories, Grand Union. Last year, Zadie Smith was honored with the Penn Audible Literary Service Award in recognition of her remarkable achievements as a novelist, short story writer, and essayist whose work displays unparalleled attention to craft and humane ideals. Over the years, I have interviewed Zadie Smith with each new title, 
Today, I'd like to play our conversation from 2010 about her first collection of essays, Changing My Mind. She spoke to me from the CBC's London studio. The opening essay in your collection, Changing My Mind, describes your first encounter with the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God by the early 20th century Afro-American writer Zora Neale Hurston. Can you tell me about that? Well, I, I guess in my early teens, my mum my was always pushing um, black American fiction my way with absolutely the best intentions. And I had some of my best reading experiences through that early Toni Morrison, early Alice Walker. But I suppose after a while, I became suspicious about why she was continually pushing only black American fiction at me. And so when she gave me Zora Neale Hurston, I was reluctant to read it. Um, and so it's an essay about a preconception I had of a book I thought I didn't want to read. And... Um, how the book got round that, because it's actually it's a masterpiece. So, briefly, what's what's their eyes were watching God about? It's it's not about anything very interesting on the surface. I mean, if you try and retell the story, um, it doesn't excite. It's it's really just a simple love story. It's a woman uh, looking for the right man in her life, and she goes through three of them uh, before she finds him. But it's also obviously the story of what it was like to be a black woman in America in the uh, late twenties, early thirties, and it's a story of a consciousness coming to life from from an oppressive consciousness to one which is genuinely free. And and you say it took you three hours to read, but it left you in tears. Why why did it have such an impact? It's hard. I've read it so many times now, and I've taught it, and I've uh, studied it, so now it's difficult to remember exactly because it's become such an artifact to me. But I I think the initial uh, response was, uh, a great deal of it was personal because the character... Not that she was like me, I mean, in practical terms, from a, a different universes in, in a certain way, but I guess her genetic inheritance and mine and her hair and my hair and her eyes and my eyes and her skin and my skin, these things that, as reading experiences I didn't normally have, I didn't realise how relieved or how much I wanted to have that experience. So I think it was an experience of relief. One of the terms you use to describe their eyes were watching God is soulful, and and you admit that's a hard word to define, but what is it about Hurston's novel that gives it soul? Soulfulness, uh, to me, means authenticity and naturalness. Obviously, both of those things are very awkward in literature. There's no such thing as natural in the art. There's the artifice of looking natural, but she does it incredibly well, and the language is... um, it's a language that she had in her ear. It's a language of Eatonville, which is the town in Florida she grew up in. Um, but it's not patronising and it's not painful. Though I, I actually know now, having looked back at the publication history of that book, that a lot of black readers at the time did find it painful, maybe because it was so accurate and they felt that their language was being exposed to an audience that might not appreciate it or understand it. But um, I think reading it now, there's no doubt that that language is rendered with love and with affection and with respect and it's so uh, so full of imagery so um, so immediate I mean her dialogue is really something incredible there aren't many people who write dialogue that that apparently natural Salinger was another one but in terms of black speech if, if you can say that I don't think there's anyone to touch Zora Neale Hurston Did you ever talk with your mother about the book afterwards? Um, yeah I mean uh, I think she was pleased I became such a fan of it. I know when she read this essay, she was um, pleased because she, uh, I guess she she tends to think that her children, uh, I don't know, sprung from nowhere. She finds it hard to comprehend how they are the way they are. So it it was nice for her to know that she had a 
great influence on the way we are. <laughs> did, did reading Their Eyes Were Watching God make you see your mother or, or her life any differently? Yes, actually. I Yes, that's a, a good question. It did. I, I don't think I had, it really dawned on me what it was like to be a black woman, black as my mother is, not mixed as I am, in a, in a white culture. I mean, she told me stories like when she was on her honeymoon, they went to two places, my parents to Morocco and to Paris. And in Paris, they couldn't get a hotel room. They had to come home. Everywhere they went, they were turned away. And even in the early days when they were trying to rent apartments, she would. She said to me that she would phone and ask for a room, or and the, be told it was free, and then turn up and be told it wasn't free. And she kept on experimenting and making the distance between those two events as short as possible. So she'd phone from the end of the road and turn up two minutes later, and it never changed. She was always told the room wasn't free. And I, I suppose I didn't grow up in an England uh, that overtly uh, racist, so it was a surprise to me to hear those stories, and. Um, and it made me better understand the connection she felt with black American writers. To me, it seemed there wasn't a natural connection because we're English, they're American, the history of our communities are so diverse. But there was a connection for my mother, and it was in a history of, I suppose, humiliation. Yeah, that's astonishing to think, uh, I mean, we're talking what, late, Isn't it? <laughs> late, late 60s, early 70s? Uh, uh, mid-70s, mid just se- before I was born, 73, 74. In Paris and in London? In Paris and in London. But I was turned away from a club recently with my brother in Paris for similar reasons. I thought my brother was, a, I guess, a thug from the suburbs, is how uh, the s- fancy people in the centre of Paris think. So, uh, yeah, it's not it's not that unusual. Um, certainly in... Uh, the areas my parents lived in the 70s, there were still posters in the windows which said no Irish, no blacks and no dogs, which people in Britain do remember. So, yeah, it's extraordinary. Did Zora Neale Hurston's book hit you in in a way that was different from... You say you had been reading Toni Morrison or Alice Walker. Was there something about this book that... It was, it was written in an earlier time in the 20th century, but was there something about this book especially that, that got you? Um, I mean... Partly, it's not even—it's not at all racial. It's stylistic. I, I was used to a kind of English fiction which is very formal in its effects and uh, has a third-person voice, which is almost um, stuffy, at least very fixed. And what's unusual about Hurston is this pass, passing she does between a very, very almost a very close first-person voice and a third-person voice. The third person is infused with the character of Janie's voice, and I, I thought that was extraordinary. There isn't much of that in English fiction. And then at a much more basic and primal level, I think if you're a kid and you want to do something and you don't see many people who seem like you doing the thing you want to do, it's a great joy to to find out that it has been done not just competently but brilliantly. So, so that that meant a lot to me at the time. Zadie Smith, by contrast, your your essay on Kafka shows him to be someone who didn't identify with his own community or with any sense of community or even sometimes with human beings. Did that sense of alienation ever strike a chord with you? Yes, much more. And in fact, to be f- f- accurate to Zora, Zora was quite like that too. Um, she, she was always being encouraged to be more clubbable than she was, but her natural instincts were were to be a loner. And in her autobiography which a lot of her fans don't like to read because it's so surprising she is really quite conservative she's quite reactionary at times and a lot of her um, opinions vary from what uh, you would think um, the black community of her time would have felt so she herself 
um, struck out alone and, and really determined upon the idea that she would write what she liked and not write on behalf of a community. And one book she wrote, Seraph on the Swanee, is entirely populated by white people, for example, which was an enormous shock to her black readers that anybody would want to do that. But she had decided that, I feel, she had decided that the whole of humanity was going to be her province, not just the the black half of it. So I think she has a connection with Kafka there. Kafka is a more extreme case, you're right. He didn't feel he had much in common with humanity as a whole. I mean, Kafka, I, I like like everybody because the prose is extraordinary, and that's the thing before any uh, politics of identity or discussion of community. It's just about how you make a sentence. Zora Neale Hurston makes an extraordinary sentence, which is all hers, and Kafka makes a different kind of sentence, which is all his. And I think that's what matters to me first, above everything else. Zadie Smith, another of the novels that's made a lasting impression on you is Middlemarch by George Eliot. Uh, You you point out that it gets better as you get older. You you quote Virginia Woolf's famous remark that it's one of the few English novels written for grown-ups. What makes Middlemarch part of that select group? Well, when I was writing this book, what I really wanted to convey was were the books of my, um, I guess, my adolescence and my early adulthood. And Middlemarch was one of those books. It's... um, it's just an extraordinary achievement in the novel. It's so diverse, it's so gigantic, its concentration is so diffuse. It's a social novel, which England has always aspired to. At the same time, it's a great philosophical novel, um, like its continental cousins. It, it seems to do almost everything, and it was written in circumstances which seem to me incredible. I, I mean, I've read several biographies of Eliot recently, and I'm always amazed that she made it out of her incredibly difficult adolescence, a very difficult adulthood to get to that book. It seems at every point in her life completely improbable that she'll have the freedom or the time or just the mental peace in order to write something like that, and yet she she managed it. I, she just is extraordinary to me. And one of the most phenomenal autodidacts I I think there, there are in English writing. Um, she didn't... This is not a woman who got to go to Oxford or Cambridge or be educated like her... A male peers, everything she learnt, she learnt by herself and by the dint of useful friendships. I mean, she sits around translating Spinoza by herself. She, I, she just amazes me. Uh, Although she, book, she, she was living with, uh, with George Henry Lewis, who was also translating Spinoza. Absolutely. and they met Who, who other, started it? <laughs> I, I think she was first, but they, they met each other late and they were each other's saviours um, to a certain degree and... Um, but also each other's curses socially, because once they met, nobody would visit them at the house. They were the shame of London, etc., etc. Because he was married. Yes. Um, she lived a very, very difficult life. Um, and the book doesn't bear any sign of that struggle. And I always think in that wonderful essay, Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf says, you know, the problem for so many female writers, the, the reason why their books, as she looks through history, either don't exist or tend to be bad is that, you're so deformed by the struggle of just getting to write that it shows on the page to such an extent you can't repress your anger and your disappointment and your fury. And what's remarkable about people like Eliot and Austin is that they did manage somehow to process all of that um, oppression that they experienced and still to create art of the highest order. So the book means a lot to me for that reason, because it's so witty, so expansive, um, so full of characters, so well balanced, and yes, because it it changes the older you get and the more you read it. 
I've noticed, particularly for young women, and I was 15 when I first read it, that Dorothea is a, a kind of heroic figure. And then when you come back to it in your late 20s, early 30s, and beyond, Dorothea becomes increasingly ridiculous, and you realise how much of it was a satirical portrait of George Eliot, um, of a younger version of herself, so religiously serious, so completely lacking in a sense of humour, um, so devoted to the wrong things. Um, when you're 15, I, I took all of that straight, and I didn't realise um, the satire that, that's in there. You just um, think so she's making a bad marital choice. You think she's making a bad marital choice, but you think she's incredibly noble and, and terrific and, and, and committed. And she is in a way those things, but she also is extremely dogmatic, doesn't understand compromise, can't understand the weaknesses of other people, um, has no respect for the weaknesses of other people. Um, and that, that's something the book is interested in, that people aren't perfect, that they are flawed, and that it's still possible to comprehend them and love them. Um, something which Dorothea does learn at the very end. But um, when I was 15, you know, she was a model of behaviour. I wanted to be exactly like her. <laughs> George Eliot believed that ideas can't be separated from life if they're to have any meaning. And uh, as as you said, she was translating the, the 17th century Dutch-Jewish philosopher Spinoza. How did she apply his work to her own writing, or how did he influence her her, her writing? I think he gave her a possibility to think of nature as a, an illuminated thing. And she was interested in natural science anyway. And she had come from an extremely religious family and she turned her back on that religion, which was incredibly difficult and incredibly isolating. And was, it, was Methodist. Yeah. And Spinoza gave her an opportunity to see the world as illuminated, as fraught with something holy that wasn't to do with a monotheistic god or obeying certain religious rules. I think that's the way she chose to interpret it. And the world she offers you in Middlemarch is holy in and of itself. And that's a great uh, kind of humanist spirit that pushes through it. The people are holy in and of themselves, even in their flaws, even in their sinfulness. I think that really mattered to her and, and was the engine of her art. It, it's something, even for me, it's completely nostalgic. I can't imagine feeling that positively about the world. I didn't think for any writer born in in my age in my period could have that feeling for the world that Elliot has it's it's particular to her moment and to her experience and there's a joy in reading it because it reminds you that that was once a, a I don't know how to say it, a possible position to take on the world there's a short passage from Middlemarch that's among its most famous lines. If we had a keen vision and feeling for all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat, and we should mm. die of that roar on the, that lies on the other side of silence. What, I, I even remember these lines. I can't remember which book, but it was used as an epigraph, I think, probably more than once by yeah, different yeah, novels. Everywhere. Yeah. Why do those lines stay with you? Um, I, I think, if you ask me honestly, now I think it's a kind of... Uh, philosophical nostalgia because what those lines mean what they suggest is that if we had complete empathy if we could understand how people are from the inside and that's what this kind of novel that Eliot wrote this great 19th century novel was trying to show you to force you into empathy with people unlike yourself people of great diversity unlike each other that once you understood them you'd be capable of loving them as God would have loved them you'd be able to appreciate them and to um, live the good life uh, I think contemporary fiction and certainly fiction since the 60s has questioned that assumption that knowing what lies in somebody's heart 
would allow you to empathize with them totally, would allow you to become them. I don't think that's necessarily true myself. I think it's a wonderful thought, and I think Eliot believed it, and I think it's what gives those 19th century novels that we all have affection for their incredible power. Um, but I think for people in, for lack of a better word, the postmodern age, the idea that empathy naturally leads to right action is uh, harder to believe because we have an enormous amount of information about people's lives, almost constant um, flow of information. It doesn't seem to, um, by its nature, make us uh, behave better towards them. Although it still seems like there is a power when you when you read a first person account from a place you know nothing about, or that you're even your country is at war with. That has that somehow. I hope that's true. But I think maybe it's a position you have to defend with more vigour than you used to. It's not enough just to say, uh, here's my piece of reportage of the inside of Iran, because it's still incredibly easy for people to take narrative accounts like that as just another story. Very nice, makes you think for two days, and then you pass over it. So I think for all of us who work in the arts, who are interested in engaging the empathic <laughs> um, soul of somebody... Um, you need different routes to the same thing. You can't keep on going down the same road because it, it gets worn down. It becomes familiar and it stops having its effect. So I guess when I write about Eliot, it's not that I wish that people wrote novels like Eliot anymore. I don't think it's possible. But I'm saying that this path that she walked down is incredibly engaging and works incredibly well. And how can we find paths um, as contemporary writers that strike off in a different direction but move towards the same need to um, to engage people in that way? Because you say these aren't particularly healthy times for the novel. That the, the, the um, you know, it depends. Sometimes I'm incredibly hopeful, but then I think what we might have to stop thinking is that the novel is going to keep on coming to us in the same form. Like I spent this morning reading graphic novels, um, which I love, and it just kept on striking me that within 30 pages there seemed to be more vibrant ideas than I'd read in 20 novels this month, you know? So sometimes the exciting narrative forms aren't the ones you th you think they're going to be. Uh, to me, anyway, American graphic novels are extraordinary at the moment. Um, I agree. There, there seems to be the, 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 the deepest, baldest honesty coming out of absolutely. these. Absolutely. Uh, these and even, of... I, I just I read an Adrian Tamin, an old one I hadn't read, and it's maybe a collection of 10 stories, and every story has such life in it. I would kill to be able to come up with a book of 10 short stories of such vibrancy, of such interest. So... It, sometimes what's going on is not going on where you you expect it to be going on, basically. Zadie Smith, uh, critics aside, you, you've written about the disappointment a writer feels in his or her own work, and, and much of this seems to come down to a sense of self-betrayal. Can you tell me about that? Well, it's, it's I, strange for me because I thought when I first started writing, I was very young, and I thought everybody felt the way I did as you do when you're young, you assume that everyone feels the way you do. And as I met writers, I'd never met writers before in my life, you realise there are plenty of writers who just absolutely adore their work and think every word they write is absolutely fantastic and will defend it, you know, till their dying day. So I don't know. It's Some writers feel that way. I, I've never... I just can't... I can't find that confidence in myself. Um, at the same time, I mean, I don't... I. I, there's not much point in talking about it all the time because people either think you're being falsely modest or but but to me it's a just a very painful experience writing and i i hope it it will stop being so painful as i get older but it doesn't seem to be to be getting any better
Oh, you described mm-hmm. when you tried to reread your first novel, White Teeth, you seemed to literally feel sick. I mean, what, what do you think that was about? I, I mean, the thing that's really important is that you respect the fact that other people appreciate a book that you wrote and you don't dismiss it for them. You know, if it's important to people, that's that's great and it means something to them. But um, I, I just think anybody out there who was forced to read something they'd written when they were 21 would have a problem with that. You know, it's hard. You don't go back and read your college essays with great delight. Um, and it just happened that my, my college essay was a novel. Although you said the experience was a bit better when you picked up your, your last novel on beauty. I think it always gets a bit better the closer to um, the time you're reading it. But um, to me, the only thing that really gives me pleasure, pleasure is some of the very short bits of nonfiction that I've written. And I think it's partly because nonfiction is an area that I can control and at least you can be right which uh, which I find a nice sensation to be right occasionally <laughs> whereas with novels it's impossible to be right you're always wrong to most people or half the people or and uh, it's just very I, it's, I just find it very painful You talk about the connection between style and the author and it's almost like there's a connection between aesthetic choices and ethics I mean how is style a writer's way of, of telling the truth, as you put it? I, it just it seems to me, I, I know talking to younger students when I'm teaching that they're very concerned about having a voice or having a style, but to me, a style is something you can't help but have. It's like your skin. It's not It's not something that you can go out and, and buy, or it, it just is the way you express yourself. It's so um, It's so implicit to everything you do. And I guess when I was, again, 10 years ago, almost 15 years ago now, when I was starting and I began to meet writers for the first time, it just struck me very forcibly that they were like their books. And I thought that this was something that I hadn't been allowed to even consider as a university student, where we really divorced the author from the work in order to take the work to ourselves um, more intimately. We just weren't interested in authors. We never saw them. They were certainly never invited to the university. I'd never met one. I didn't even consider them. I just considered the text, as we went about calling it at that time. And then when I met authors, the similarity between what you would call their personality and the sensibility of their work on the page amused me. I was just so surprised by it. That might sound so stupid and so obvious to general readers who assume that anyway, but I think I'd disappeared so far into an academic funnel, I'd forgotten that there is a relation, an intimate relation between the human being and the book. It doesn't mean that the book is autobiographical, in fact, almost entirely the opposite. But something in the voice of the person, something in their sensibility is inextricably tied to the way that they write. And uh, once I could admit that to myself and realised it. I just found writing criticism a completely different experience. Whereas before, in college, I'd been writing these very academic, very jargon-heavy, um, very pleasure-free, to be honest, essays about books that I loved. And it was such a liberation to be able to write about books I love in a way that I love writing and to say, look, there is, there's a relation here. The, the author and the text, they go together. And it, the relation between them really matters. But it seemed to be almost a question of personality rather than ethics. Or I, I'm not sure where I, how I understand this, because, of course, there are writers who uh, we would find ethically objectionable. I mean, uh, 
and, like and who? Yet, oh, oh, I guess I guess something like uh, Eliot's anti-Semitism or right. Philip Larkin's uh, everything. I mean, but <laughs> misogyny see, and everything. See, to me, those things are superficial. I agree with you, but but they're not really about a style. Like to me, Larkin's style is one of the most ethical styles that exist. What Larkin said in his letters, or what he might have said to so and so at a dinner party, is something slightly separate. But the way his sentences are formed, the things that his poems believe are incredibly important to me and it's it is very hard sometimes um to make that distinction to me Larkin's poetry are completely Larkin it's also true that Larkin could be racist could be misogynist was frequently offensive but the things that um matter in Larkin to me his poems about death his poems about time those seem to me extraordinarily um ethical's the wrong word because it sounds like somebody's pushing a point that isn't what I mean. I mean ethics in the larger sense that certain poems of Larkin's have a way of showing me how to be alive. And that's the most important thing a piece of writing can do. I, I don't disagree. I guess it's, it's this idea of the work as a or style as an expression of personality or of a writer's way of being in the world. But wouldn't you say that a great style represents the best of a writer's person? I, I, I know, for example, like in something I write, if, if it works if it's done well, that what's expressed in that essay or piece of fiction is really the best of me to the extent that if you then ask me about the essay, I feel stupider than the essay. I can't remember half the things I put in the essay. The essay is smarter than me in every way because in that four pages, I was able to organise everything just the way I want it and express the best side of myself. The rest of you, the real kind of human side, kind of draggles around behind this work, I think maybe that's also why people are often disappointed when they meet writers. They seem less than their work in some way. Uh, I think that's probably true. But they are connected. What does writing do for you? Can you say why you write? I, do, I, I don't write that much. Like There are people who write every day and it's a part of their life. And I go for months and recently years without writing fiction, for example. For me, it's not a daily survival and I, I've heard writers speak of something they can't help but do the only thing I can't help but do is read if I don't read every day I'm just completely doomed so I, I think maybe I'm the more effective question for me is uh, what does reading do for you because it's reading I'm really addicted to and it's writing that's a kind of outgrowth of that passion I definitely think the weight is on on reading and um, what and what does reading do for you um I, I'm just completely addicted to it. It just keeps me. Maybe it's a kind of I don't know, constant personal denial. I just nothing will stop me doing it. I realise now with my baby, I'm, I'm breastfeeding her, and all I do is read all the time. And my husband reminded me, you know, you have to speak to the child occasionally, because otherwise I won't learn to speak. <laughs> just read out loud. <laughs> what she's used to is just sitting on my lap, and then I notice when I turn a page, she kind of jerks, like she's horrified by that sound. And that's going to be her main childhood memory, this page-turning noise. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it's just something that allows me not to, to be myself, I think, or allows me to be other places amongst other people. And I just get a great joy out of good sentence-making. Um, it's just nothing makes me happier. And uh, as a result, I just... I, I think that's the thing which I enjoy most of every day. Like I usually spend the mornings reading and then I do my best to try and write something in the um, afternoon. But the afternoon thing almost never happens, whereas the morning thing always happens. 
Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of FrontBurner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear FrontBurner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Zadie Smith, your new book of essays, Changing My Mind, is dedicated to your father's memory. He died in, in 2006. And you write about him with such tenderness, with, with unsentimental tenderness. Can you tell me a bit about him? Well, I, I guess I don't know that much about him, which is kind of the reason I'm always writing about him, trying to work work it out a little bit. He was... Um, he was an unusual father in the sense that he was much older than he should have been to have a daughter my age. He was 50 when I was born, so he was always old. Um, and for my generation of kids, you know, the stories he had to tell were somewhat unusual. You know, he'd heard Ella Fitzgerald sing on the Kilburn High Road. He went to see Casablanca in the movie house. He went to war. He was in the Second World War, slightly younger than he should have been. So to me, he was already a bit of a fictional character when I was a kid. I couldn't understand why someone that old was my father. And I suppose I, I just think I was always very concerned about him dying. And I, I think that kind of uh, thought when you're a kid is, on the one hand, I suppose, a negative thing. But also, uh, it's just an interesting idea to have in your mind as a very young child. The idea of him disappearing or aging or him being part of this distant generation was very preoccupying to me and it also gifted me a lot of my um, slightly anachronistic tastes the films that he loved are the films I love but of course they're the films of the 30s and 40s and all the popular songs that he loved I know which I probably shouldn't know because they're the songs of the 20s um, so that that kind of thing um, was strange about him and then uh, apart from that uh, he was a very quiet man I mean I used his character a little bit for white teeth he was a very disappointed man. He was had left school at age 12. Um, he was never properly educated. I think he was smart and he would have liked to have had more of an education. So uh, as the years went by, we were kind of slightly at odds with each other. It's a kind of man in his late 70s, white, English, uneducated, with a black daughter. We made a funny pair, I tell you, walking down the street. Um, so uh, he was always a bit mysterious to me and I, I think um, in him is the kind of... Uh, seed of my interest in in writing it was just wanting to figure out who this man was who lived in our house and a lot came from that I think and when you say at odds more that you seem you were at you seemed odd but not at odds in the sense of uh, argumentative or that no I, I mean I, I think I we had a hard time in my teenage years just because he was so such an anomaly compared to all my friends' fathers that I just started to try and pretend he didn't exist. But as I got older, and particularly once he got more, uh, well, older and more vulnerable, which I think is very common for um, the children of older parents, it all turned around and I realised there was no point in being angry or um, upset with him because all the responsibility to take care of him was on on my side now. So, uh, no, we were at odds just because our lives were so different and he made this effort to make sure all his children were educated. But once you do that in a family... Um, it's just odd, you know, his accent, he had a working class accent, I don't anymore. Um, he hadn't read that much and I became well read. Um, so I think with a lot of 
a working class or immigrant parent who put their children through school and hope that they'll have different lives. You get what you hope for, but what you hope for isn't something you can always recognise. So it's a strange, a strange relationship. And did that accent shift just happen overnight when you went to Cambridge? No, I think um, it's impossible for me now to remember. Like when I look at my family, I have two brothers and we all speak differently. Um, and it's partly who we were hanging out with, you know, as children. One of the things that parents don't understand, parents think that they are the biggest influence on their children. Parents have almost no influence on their children. What influences children is their friends and where they go and what they do. And so my youngest brother was um, much more a kid of the streets than I was. And he sounds, you know, like a street kid. And my middle brother was less so, and he's somewhere in the middle. And then I was at home, you know, reading George Eliot. And, and so <laughs> I don't know what happened to me. So we, we're all from the same family, but you would say we were three different classes. And that interests me, that idea, because people assume when you're from one place, you're one people. But we're all very different. We we dress differently. We think differently. We have different politics. And all from one household. It's strange. When you were an adult, you you asked your father to tell you about his time in the military during the Second World War, because it was something he hadn't really talked about before. Do you know why not? Just, I I think, I don't know, he just never mentioned it. I mean, people often say that about war veterans, know that they don't talk about it. I I don't know if it was because he was so traumatised. I can't really imagine what it was like landing in Normandy. I mean, now I've seen the movies and... uh, I can't, it's impossible for me to conceive of my father in that situation. I don't know how he survived it. It seems amazing to me. But he just never mentioned it. You know, he had a young wife, he had young children. It was the 80s and and the Second World War seemed a long way away to us. Um, I don't know if he could even have made us understand it really. Um, But when I was an adult, I I did want to know. And and, uh, he was really interesting and eloquent about it and very resistant of my attempts to turn it into a more interesting story. For him, it was a very banal story, I think, for the most part, he feels. I didn't think it was banal when he told it to me, but it certainly wasn't full of glamorous heroics or anything. He would he would try to, as you t- describe it in, in your book, he would focus on what seemed like small details. And, and yeah. there's a ridiculous moment where I was trying to get him to tell me what happened just after they landed on the beach a few days later, and then he decided to tell me that he went to went to buy a pen for the, <laughs> the pay tapestry. I was like, we move on from the pen incident into more interesting territory. But that was quite like my father. He was quite fixated on the small details. The thing, I, I mean, he helped liberate Belson. I thought that was more interesting than buying a pen, but it's much more like my father to get into the pen. Yeah. But it, it was good to hear it from, and it was good in a very simple way to just to have it recorded and now it's there always and I can show it to my daughter and now I I know what he did and I am very proud of him because I it seems such an unlikely thing for him to do and he volunteered as well it's extraordinary yeah he was very young yeah do you, do you think he focused on the pen because the, the incident that happened after that was um yes I mean he had he made this mistake a kind of rookie mistake of uh setting a small fire to make some tea and it was spotted by the Germans and they shelled and um, people died and my father was injured. It was his fault. Um, And trying to think about a young man having that kind of responsibility. For my generation, things can go wrong when you do something stupid, but the consequences are so minute compared to that. He was so ill-equipped for it, 17, having, having an experience like that. 
No, it's it's amazing. And it's a story I still don't know how to feel about it. I mean, it, he's responsible for this terrible thing. But well, it depends what you think of the nature of responsibility. It's also a terrible accident. But uh, he did cry when he told me it, so it must have been on his mind all those years. I had no idea. Oh. How did hearing about his experiences affect how you saw him? Um, I was saying to my brothers, I think when we were kids, we were desperately looking for a way to be proud of our father and also to be interested in him. He just seemed to us the dullest man in the world. <laughs> Poor dad. <laughs> Please forgive me for saying that. You know, he's passed. But he did seem, you know, he just seemed to have no interest. He didn't like anything. The only thing he seemed to like were old movies. And I kind of fixated on that because I wanted to share an interest with him. But I had this... Uh, preoccupation with the idea that there were these middle-class families out there who had interests, you know, I don't know, who loved books and and had conversations at the dining table about interesting things. And I wanted to be in one of those families. I think in On Beauty, that's a kind of, it's an expression of a fantasy I had when I was a child of being in this kind of family. And then also growing up and realizing that families like that have their own problems, plenty of their own problems. Um, but yeah, so I just, I wanted him to be a different kind of man. And then asking him those questions late in his life and finding out all this amazing stuff, I realized that actually I've been living with a very interesting man all my life. I just have been too stupid to realize it. But it's interesting, he, your father shows up in your work in, in a number of ways. I'm not just in, in White Teeth and the fantasy level of On Beauty, but you wrote some short stories about a man named Hanwell, who's about the same age as your father. Yeah. Share, share some of his background. Yeah, no, those are definitely, yes, those are stories inspired by my father and... Um, Inspired by generations of my father's family, his he had a strange relationship with his father. In that, um, yeah, his father was another a kind of unknowable man who he, uh, when he died, my father ne never went to his deathbed, which interested me. So I wrote a story about that too. Um, yeah, Hanwell became a kind of a, I don't know, a series of linked uh, stories in the life of my father. I don't know if I'll continue doing them, but I found them of everything I've ever written, the easiest to write and the most fulfilling in terms of fiction they're the only fiction i've written that i can uncomplicatedly uh, appreciate i think it's interesting because it also incorporates this uh, the sense of disappointment and and sadness in, in in his life yes and i i think um you know i'm very inclined when things get uh tricky to tell a joke instead and my fiction is very like that i think it relies a lot on humor like a lot of english fiction to uh to avoid uh, difficult things. But I find uh, when I was writing those Hanwell stories that I didn't want to do that. I didn't feel the need to do it. And that was a good thing. And to me, I mean, I'm so early in my writing life, I have no idea. But maybe those stories will prove to be transitional. To me, they anyway seem like um, a different way of writing, a, a different kind of thing I wanted to do. But, but comedy was one of the things that you shared with your father, a love of comedy. Yeah, absolutely. He d he did have a good sense of humor, which I really appreciated. Um, and he we found the same things funny. And he liked absurdist things. He loved the goons a lot. And the goons, to me, is very intellectual comedy, you know. But at the same time, it's almost slapstick and ridiculous. I love that about it. He also was a massive uh, Monty Python fan, which meant a great deal to me because I thought they were extraordinary. So all of that humor... I and mean, when I sat down to write White Teeth, believe it or not, I really, I was a very uh, serious young woman and I thought I was writing a very serious book. And then when it turned out all comic, I was just surprised. I didn't realise that's the kind of writer I was going to be. But I think that must be under the influence of all that comic stuff from my childhood.
And again, it's of a certain era, like Tony Hancock or Monty Python. Or yeah, yeah. I, some, a friend of mine, when I finished White Teeth, I went on holiday and a lot of college friends there, and they all did me the favour of reading the manuscript of White Teeth and putting, trying to correct them. A lot of, I mean, I know there are still a great deal of histori- a historical mistakes and all kinds of nonsense in it, but they were all smart kids and they did me the favour of checking spelling mistakes and checking bad facts. And one girl there said to me, at the time, she finished the book and she said, you know, I think you're fatally out of step with your generation, which always <laughs> made me laugh. And I, I, think it's, I think it's profoundly true. I think now I'm getting a bit closer to them and my tastes have changed, but definitely when I was 21, I was just <laughs> completely at the wrong end of everything, of every trend and every possible idea in the arts and fiction and all the rest of it. Um, and that is partly my father as well. I think my father's influence. <laughs> And so much of British comedy is based on class. That, that, that your father see his own foreshortened possibilities in, in relation to his class. Yes, I, I, I mean, yes, he did, and I think he was right to it. it. I'm constantly amazed now in England that class has stopped being a conversation. Something that Thatcher did, which was so brilliant, was to suggest that. Um, we're all democratic now, and even to talk about class is a kind of snobbery. It's the most extraordinary piece of doublethink I think I've ever heard, and it works. I, even recently I was watching a news show on TV and somebody dared to bring up the fact that what will probably be the incoming Tory government are almost all eaten educated, and working-class people stood up in the audience outraged to say, you know, we don't talk about that kind of thing, it doesn't matter, you know, we're all equal now. It's so perverse, <laughs> so unbelievably perverse. But my father's generation were politicised and did feel that class mattered because class matters when it foreshortens what you could possibly do in your life. And the fact is that the, the boy who's eaten educated and, and the boys in that TV audience who are educated in schools that politicians wouldn't deign to put their own children in have different possibilities in front of them. And that does matter. It mattered enormously to my father that he didn't couldn't afford to go to the school that he got into at 13. He couldn't afford the uniform, which would, must have been, whatever, two and six. And for two and six, he lost a life. And if that's not a matter of class, I, I just don't know what to call it. It's a tragedy. And a lot of men of my father's generation suffered it. Because it certainly wasn't ability, because as you say, he got into the school. Yeah. And that, I mean, that meritocracy, I, I was talking to a friend recently, and I, I sometimes feel, I hope this isn't true, that my generation are the very last generation of the British meritocracy. I went to school, both schools, and to Cambridge, and I didn't pay a penny. That's not possible anymore. It's just not possible. I think the fees are already, whatever it is, 3000 4000 plus the loan. And you hear people say, oh, well, if you care about your education, you'll pay for it. People who say that don't understand what it's like not to have money. When you don't have money, you don't have money. And you don't borrow money either because you're scared of borrowing that amount of money. And if those fees had existed in whenever it was, 1993, 94, I wouldn't have gone to Cambridge. It just wouldn't have happened because I never would have thought to borrow the money. We would have just thought, well, that's not for us. End of story. So it just, what's happening now in British education breaks my heart because it means that that meritocracy that created, for, for instance, people like, I don't know, Alan Bennett, um, it's gone. It can't happen anymore. You can't be a working class boy from Yorkshire and go to the best university in the country because you can't afford to. And uh, it's just tragic, really. So there was just that slice of time when that kind of access and scholarship was available? Yeah, post-war and it's gone. So, yeah, it's it's sad and it is a question of class, but if you ask most British people, I think, these days, I, I, they've come to accept it. I, we're going towards an American model and I don't think there's much that can be done to stop it anymore. 
Zadie Smith, when we talked last time, you said that families are a messy business, and, and you've recently had a baby yourself, your first. Has being a parent changed anything in the way you see or feel about family? Um, you know, in all the usual ways, I I do have more sympathy for my mother, which I I guess in the recently I've been lacking. <laughs> Me and my mother have a pretty fiery relationship, and my mother and her mother have a pretty fiery relationship, and now I have a daughter and, um, you know, it does occur to you that oh, I'm almost 35 and it's not so easy having a kid. And my mother was 20, so young and, and so innocent and married to a man 30 years older. You just start to appreciate what somebody else went through. So it makes you more sympathetic, I suppose. And I don't. the thing which really strikes me is is how much arrant nonsense has spoken about family life and family emotion I I kept on hearing before I had my baby that once you have a baby um, you just become a, a different and more wonderful person so full of sympathy your ego disappears you're so less vain that's all complete nonsense I feel myself <laughs> to be completely as egotistical and unpleasant as I've always been but now with child I, I can't I haven't noticed any sudden transformation um, in my personality so uh I think people tell them themselves a lot of things. Or maybe I'm just, you know, a terrible person. But I, I haven't noticed myself becoming kinder or more, or more thoughtful. Um, it seems to me having children is a massive act of egotism in the first place. Um, it doesn't make you selfless at all. It's a kind of selfish act. Uh, so the selflessness I was hoping for hasn't hasn't happened. And uh, I don't know. I, I For me... Maybe it's different for other people who have proper jobs, but there has been a strange feeling of continuity. Like My life has always been about sitting in a chair, uh, reading a book, um, and occasionally typing, and now it's kind of the same, but I've got drool on me. <laughs> we talked about the, the way, the, the personal in writing and reading and how the understanding of life experience can inform or affect a work. Do you think the experience of having a child will influence your writing? Uh, I don't. I don't know. The thing that my writing, I think. I mean, I've never really seen a shrink, but I would. My guess about my writing is that it's always been a way of making the future safe. You know, so I I get married and I write a book about a marriage of thirty years standing, or um, you know, when I wrote White Teeth, uh, that the central friendship of Archie and Samad is it was vaguely based on a friendship I had and I kind of extended it way into the future into adulthood with families and children so um, I, I think I've always tried to write things out before I've done them um, as a way of pre-experiencing them let's put it that way or the negative interpretation would be of not experiencing them a way of just phonally getting through life uh, and I guess I imagine that childbirth and having a child would be the one experience that would be impossible to mediate which would really be the real thing the genuine thing his life coming at you um but to, again to me that isn't true it's po possible to mediate almost everything or it's possible for me to mediate everything sadly um so i, I don't know if it will be a big transformation i i feel like in in print i already had children <laughs> i don't know and you've been married for 30 years yeah, instead of yeah, uh, seven, terrible, six or but, seven or whatever. <laughs> but I think the, the truly great thing about children, presumably, as they get older, is that they exercise their independence. It's Somebody said to me recently, a kid who, she has a kid who's six years old, that the terrible thing she can't admit to people or even to herself is that she kept on expecting the kid to grow into her. 
to become her. And slowly the kid just becomes somebody else. And it's horrifying. You give birth to this thing which is of your body and seems to be your thing. You know, it's something that you in some way own. And it grows up and it becomes a separate consciousness, a separate um, person. And it's it's a kind of constant metaphysical shock to realize that you've given birth to someone who might end up your enemy or or at least someone who is in conflict with you so i think that's really interesting for me it'll be the one thing that i've made that i can't control which would be great <laughs> wait a second was that uh, that sounded a little weak <laughs> yeah i don't know it might not be that great but it'll be you know an education i say so <laughs> Zadie Smith, one of your non-literary models is Catherine Hepburn, and your title, Changing My Mind, is loosely based on a line that one of Hepburn's characters, Tracy Lord, says in the movie The Philadelphia Story. What is it that inspires you about Catherine Hepburn? Well, when I was a kid, it was just, you know, I was, I was, and I suppose I still am, what people call a tomboyish girl, whatever that means, um, and I just really wasn't that interested or I wasn't really interested at all to tell you the truth in in feminine things as they are generally interpreted by our culture and I was just looking for women I think who were interesting to me just a way of being alive which didn't involve princesses or pink or any of that scenario and Catherine Hepburn seemed to be one of those women you know she was uh, to me very attractive bold intelligent um she was womanly is the word I would use and when when I was very young reading books I shouldn't have been reading I remember reading an Alice Walker essay where she defined womanist and womanly and uh, I, that concept interested me I didn't really want to be a girl ever I, I, if I was going to have to be female that's how I kind of conceived of it when I was young I wanted to be a woman and Catherine Hepburn is um, is definitely a woman in that sense an adult person of, of her own mind and I loved her movies for that reason. And, and now, uh, as an adult, particularly, to be honest, looking around the kind of contemporary scene, I, I'm so, A, I'm really grateful I'm not eight years old in 2010 and a girl because I think it's a nightmare, <laughs> really a nightmare compared to the, the landscape when I was 10 in which you know extreme femininity was an option, but you could easily ignore it. And now it's the only option, it, it seems to me. Every magazine, every TV show has these kind of painted dolls everywhere of enormous fake bodies, fake chests and redone faces. And that, I, I don't think I could have survived that. I think I would have been completely defeated by it. And um, I just, I don't know how I would have got through. Whereas um, 30 years ago, it was a little easier. And I had these great old movies and uh, great role models, for lack of a better word. And, and Hepburn was one of, one of those. She just seemed so, so much of a person. And that's why I wanted to know that women could be. It's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Zadie Smith in the CBC's London studio in 2010. Her book of essays, Changing My Mind, is available in paperback from Penguin Canada. This week, her new novel, her sixth, The Fraud, will be published. Last year, she came out with her first play, the Wife of Willesden, inspired by Chaucer's classic, The Wife of Bath. This week's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer. Technical operations throughout the summer by Laura Antonelli and Sam Hashemi. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. 
I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and that's it for a summer of Eleanor's picks on Writers and Company. But you'll hear more shows from the archives in the coming months. There will also be a new book program in the new year. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.